Good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Ben, and I lead the youth group and also the dinner church, which he, uh, who was his did announcements? Rich. <laughs> Rich mentioned uh, that we were having this barbecue every Monday night this month, and so you're totally welcome. And actually, next Monday isn't the last one. The last one is Labor Day, so Monday of Labor Day coming up. So two more, and then we move back to our regular spot at the Brig, and we meet there every Monday from 5 to 6.30, and we would love to have each and every one of you there. Uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount the past couple months, really. I think pretty much the whole summer since... May? Yeah, maybe May. And we've been going through the Beatitudes and then this section here that deals with interpersonal relationships. And uh, before we get going on that, I just want to remind you that if you open up your bulletins, there's a blank space there uh, in which you can take notes, draw, just do whatever it is that helps you stay engaged. And then also there's a connection card there. And at the end of the sermon, we'll have some questions for you to reflect on. And if you can write your reflections on the connection card, drop them off in those wooden boxes as you exit that would be fantastic. Then we can know what people are thinking, how everyone's processing, and just stay better engaged and know how to pray for you better. And with that, let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your perfect love. And I pray that you would just speak to us today, you'd encourage us, and that we would experience your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount actually is never, that phrase is never actually said in the Bible. It's just the name we've given it because it says, he went up on the mountain and began to teach. Uh, but as you, if you live here, you know that is not at all a mountain. It's more just like a hill. And actually, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, before the Sermon on the Mount begins officially, he says Jesus began to preach and teach the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's the good news of the kingdom of God. And if you've been here the past couple months, you're like, wait, how is some of this good news? <laughs> you're telling me uh, if I look, after, look at somebody lustfully that, you know, I've pretty much committed adultery, how is that good news? So Jesus is dealing with really intense issues, really, really intense issues. He talks about personal relationships and the reason why he talks a lot about this, I think, is because the ethic of the kingdom is summarized in the greatest commandment. And what's the greatest commandment that Jesus tells us? Soul, mind, strength, and? There you go. Yeah, love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. And these interpersonal relationships are addressed, the loving your neighbor as yourself, with the idea that um, he references back to the Old Testament and he's like, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. Then he says, but I tell you, if you even have anger in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look after somebody, if you lust after somebody, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And he goes on to talk like this about divorce as well and reconciliation. And we'll talk about some more after this week as well. And really what Jesus is getting at is the heart issue. Um, and he talks about an issue that might be more surface, the way it manifests, but then he always just goes right beneath the surface and really addresses the core issue. And one thing that I felt, found helpful in visualizing this is really an iceberg. I mean, we have, this, we have the 
a phrase, the tip of the iceberg. It's a common phrase in our language. And I spent way too long looking at icebergs on Google the other day. Um, there's amazing photos out there. <laughs> but look at that. I mean, if you're above the surface, you just think, oh, it's just, you know, whatever size that is, I have no idea. You look at it. But then if you go underneath, you realize, oh, man, it goes way deeper than anybody expected. And in fact, it's like 20 times bigger underneath the water than it is above water. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is how it manifests itself, but really, it's underneath it that's the problem. It's the heart that's causing this to occur. And he's talking about the kingdom of God because the good news of the kingdom of God is that through the death and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are being transformed into his image, not just in the outward appearances, but internally. Um, we are being freed from the shame and the sin and the human condition that makes us unable to fully love each other very well and love ourselves very well. So let's start out with the message we're talking about today, which is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. I'll, I also have it up here. Um, and uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles or smartphones or tablets or whatever it is you use. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And just a little bit of trivia at the very beginning there, where he says, you've heard from long ago, and he quotes, it looks like it's a quote. Um, it's not actually a verse in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It's a conglomeration, a mixture of like four different passages in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that he just mixes into that statement right there. And what people were doing is that they were trying to bring God into their promises, into their oaths. So uh, they would be like, they, they knew they couldn't say God's name in vain because they were told, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And so they're like, but I want someone to believe me and I want to somehow manipulate somebody so they'd try and get as close to God as possible without actually saying his name. It's sort of like, uh, you know, like, like name dropping. Have you ever, you know, people who do that? Or you might do it. I definitely, I know I've done it before. Where you're sort of talking to somebody and there might be somebody who's really cool uh, in your group or in your sphere. And you sort of drop like, oh yeah, I was just having coffee with Greg the other day. And, da, da, da. and it's a way to sort of add, um, change the way they view you. Make them view you in a, a better light. It's like, oh, man, he had coffee with Greg, and Greg was telling him this. And, yeah, da, da. and it's sort of like that. That's what we're doing with God. That's what they're doing. They're bringing him into their situation so that then they can use God to manipulate the perception that somebody has towards them. And that's what an oath is actually is making a promise and then calling a, divine, a divinity, a divine person to witness it. And these people, what they would do is, like I said, they're trying to get as close to God as possible so they could manipulate, but without actually saying his name. So they'd say things like, as heavens are my witness. Because, I mean, the heavens, that's where God lives. Man, that's pretty close to God, but it's not God, so you're not taking the Lord's name in vain. And they had all these rules. I mean, seriously, in the, like, the rabbinic writings, there's just pages and pages of, you can do this, you can do that. Like, you can swear by Jerusalem, but you can't swear towards Jerusalem. You can swear by the altar, but you better not swear by the blood on the altar. Or you can 
uh, swear by, or sorry, that's the opposite. You can swear by the sacrifice on the altar, but you better not swear by the altar. Or you can swear by um, the money or the temple, but you can't swear by the money in the temple. They had all these just weird rules. It was just sort of crazy. And Jesus is addressing this, and he's like, listen, everything is created by God. And there's a great example that we'll uh, read right now, and then we'll come back to this other verse. And it is in Matthew chapter Oh, I don't have it in here. Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. Sorry, I forgot to put it in here. Hmm. Wait one second. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll read it to you. <laughs> Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. That's what we were just talking about. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. This is really expanding what he taught right here. And what Jesus is saying is that you can't get away from God. If you swear by the heavens, he's there. You swear by the, anything on earth, he's there. Even the hair on your head was created by God, and he has complete control over what happens to it. So you can't even swear by the hair on your head. And now, I, we talked a little bit about this in youth group on Wednesday, and um, I had one person, who, individual, who said, uh-uh, that's not true. I said, well, what do you mean? I can dye my hair anytime I want. So I don't think that's what, uh, I don't know if Jesus knew about hair dye back then, but, uh, <laughs> but, but yes, yeah, so Jesus is saying that no matter what you do, you're associating God's name with it, no matter what oath you make, God is being associated with it, and therefore, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. And we see how people were abusing this system, how it became insanely legalistic. And many of you might be thinking right now, like, oh man, this is sort of nice, I don't remember the last time I made an oath, maybe if you're in a jury or witness in a case or something. I mean, we don't, it's not really common for us to, you know, promise as Jerusalem is my witness or something like that. It's not common in our language. But really what's happening here is people are using God to further their own means. It's a way to manipulate, as we talked about, manipulate the person by me, the person I'm talking to by using God. Dallas Willard has a great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he calls this um, putting a spin on things. So it might be partially true, but we just put a little bit of a spin on it and add something here, take away something here to present ourselves in a different light. For example, one thing that I thought about is, just because I saw this recently, like a Coca-Cola commercial, and this isn't all advertising, but you have like a child in perfect, pristine, white, fluffy snow cuddling with a polar bear. And it's like all happy, and you know, it evokes imagery of, oh, childhood happiness, a, 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 cold, a cold Coke in a hot day. Oh, it's a cute little bear that we're snuggling with. But they're not going to show you like, a kid drinking Coke and belching and then like drool falling out of their mouth. And it just, that's, well, no one wants that. So they twist it and they spin it in a certain light. And it has an, quite a bit of truth in it, but it completely hides all the other facets of drinking Coke regularly. And really we do this in our lives all the time. And in fact, as I was thinking about this, I un unfortunately created an illustration. Um, I was thinking about a time in college when, in my, um, when I was giving my senior thesis, and I had to defend it. And somebody asked me a question, one of the professors. 
I had no idea. And I just made up stuff. Just nonsense. And, and I just kept on going. Then afterwards, when they reviewed me, they're like, they, they took off points and they said, Ben, you just said, should have just said, I don't know. But no, here's the illustration. We're not even at the illustration yet. This is the embarrassing part. This is me being really honest. As I was thinking about this illustration, I started, and I was practicing saying it I, as I was driving. I was like, oh, and this is how I'll tell it. I started saying what it was that my paper was about. And not because it matters to you, but as a way to make myself appear more intelligent and spin something and highlight one aspect of what I did to then enhance my image in your mind. And immediately I was like, whoa, what? Like I caught myself doing it, saying this is exactly what I'm talking about. And there you go. There's an illustration that I unfortunately created just a couple days ago while I was driving. And really we do this a lot. And Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount to describe the people that are gathered in and around him by the story of Jesus, the people of the kingdom of God who are honest with themselves and with others. No facades, no fakeness, just honesty. But I wanted to have a little bit of a discussion time. So if you could talk to the person next to you, maybe one, or one to three people, and discuss why do we put up facades? Why do we put up facades? So we'll give you just like one or two minutes to discuss this with the person next to you. Why do we put up facades? Okay, try to wrap it up in 10, 15 seconds. Okay, so I hope you were able to have a good discussion about why we put up facades. Could maybe just a couple people share a short um, explanation for why we put up facades that your group thought of? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I might put on a face that looks more resigned than I really mm, Totally. And so, um, it's okay that it doesn't mean a lot of things. Yeah. But sometimes you just need to. Yeah, just be yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? One more person? Wanting to fit in. Wanting to fit in, yeah. 
so that people love us, appreciate us, want to be around us. Yeah, absolutely. Those, yeah, those are great. And I was thinking, I think we put up facades many times because we are scared of people loving us if they knew who we truly were, which is along the lines of what we just said. We put up facades to cover things that we're ashamed of, things that we feel as though might make us look different than we want to look. And what are some common facades in our culture? I, I was just thinking, and I know there's about a billion different ones we can name, but here's some ones that have stood out to me. One is always saying we're busy. You know, in, in Africa, people don't just say that. You know, it's not like, all, oh, I'm so busy all the time. I'm so busy. And it's almost become a badge of honor in our culture. And I know that there's a lot of people, we truly are busy. But then sometimes, I've seen in my own heart, I felt the need to be like everyone else. And maybe I've had a morning where I've, I've had a couple hours to just read a book and chill and relax. But then whenever my wife gets home from work, she asks me what I did. I'm like, oh, man, I did the finances. I did this. Da, da, da. It's like, what? what? Why did I do that? It's because I feel like I have to be busy. Like there, I have to find my self-worth in my job or in doing things as opposed to being able to sit still and be present. We, like Lynn said, even in terms of the way we look, we try to be put together to not show that we are really struggling or that we're stressed or anxious or being smart. I was thinking about that when I thought of that illustration. I wanted to project being intelligent to you or being super spiritual. And this is a huge one, I think, in the church. Many times we'll use God language, um, and there are, we, I believe we can use it sincerely. I think a lot of people do, but I know in my own heart I've used God language as a way to manipulate other people's perceptions of me. I know I have said, I felt a peace about this, or I felt God tell me this, or, you know, different just buzzwords that we use in Christianity to manipulate other people. And I want to be careful with that one because I do believe that, I do believe in all those things, but I just know that we can spin Christian words to further our own means. And the great tragedy of the human experience is that our deepest desires is to be known and to know. To know others and to be known by others. When God created humankind in his image, he created it in the image of the Godhead, of the triune Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are in eternal relationship of love together. And we've been creating that image. In fact, when Adam was created, it was like, you know, Adam probably shouldn't be by himself. And so Eve was created. From the beginning, we've been created to be in relationship with each other. And yet, the tragic irony is our greatest fear is also being known. Our greatest desire is to know and be known, and our greatest fear is to be known. And how does that work? I mean, right away, whenever in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against what God had uh, lovingly desired for them, immediately they felt shame. The first thing they did was hide and cover themselves. Then God comes walking in the garden, and it's interesting, God comes to them, even though he knew what happened comes and is walking in the garden and says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And they hid. The first thing they did was hide and put up a facade, a facade of leaves or bushes or wherever they were hiding behind. Shame has entered the world, and I believe that is what God and the personhood of Jesus Christ has come to free us from. And that's why he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Even though this seems like really hard, man, he's telling, me not, he's telling me to be honest, he's telling me to be real, he's telling me not to lie in this, in this passage in Matthew. But here's the thing is, 
with the knowledge that Jesus died, that he conquered sin and death, we can walk forth knowing that God loves us just the way we are. And there's this amazing verse in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then later on in that chapter. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So what is this perfect love? This perfect love is most fully seen in the Trinity, in God the Son. Remember the Trinity coming to earth, becoming human, living a life, and then dying in order to conquer sin and evil and death. And many times I think we sort of separate the Trinity unnecessarily, um, and we view it as more God really is upset with us, and then he pretty much just hit Jesus in the face, and now we're saved. I know I've thought that many times. And they are separate. The Trinity is separate to a degree, but they're also, at the same time, one. And Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. The Father and I are one. So whenever you see Jesus on the cross, whenever you imagine Jesus hanging there, dead on the cross, you see the Father's love for you just as much as you see the Son's and the Holy Spirit's love for you. And that is the perfect love. And God has welcomed us into this story. We are being formed by this story. We are being formed by this image of the Godhead's perfect sacrifice. And it affects our entire being. And this perfect love casts out all fear. It casts out fear of abandonment. Fear of people knowing our true self. Fear of failure. Fear of not measuring up to other people's standards. Fear of death. Fear of our shame. And many other fears. I know there's so many different things that we fear, and you can probably name some more. But how do we truly understand and live out this knowledge of the perfect love? How do we embody it? I mean, I know many of us could be, like, if we took a test and it says, A, God loves us. B, you know, God hates you. C, God doesn't care. We'd all know to check, A, God loves us. But do we actually believe that? Like, inside us? Do we embrace it day to day? Do we live it out while we're driving to work or as we're sleeping at night or as we're talking to our spouses or our kids or our friends? I don't really exactly know how to fully understand that. I truly believe it, but there's some times where, honestly, it's hard for me to believe that. And I live in fear of failure. I live uh, in, with the fear of letting other people down. I live with this idea that I need to put up a facade. I need to make myself appear more intelligent. I need to make myself appear more spiritual so that people will love me more. But maybe some things that can help us overcome this is church, community, right? I mean, this, we have this thing that started the past year called a Praxis Group, and I know some of you are involved in it, where it's a, it's a core group with three to four people, and it's just sharing vulnerably and being really honest together. 
not putting up fronts, just tearing the walls down and just being really honest. And then within that, you're able to love somebody whenever they're just really struggling and they're being vulnerable, they're being real, and you know that God loves them. And that's encouraging. Whenever you share something really deep and dark and somebody loves you, that changes things. I mean, Bible reading, prayer. I mean, there's so many different things that can help us embody that, but I don't think that there's just a one-size-fits-all answer for this. And it might be different for you. It might be something that God's speaking to you, you know, I want you to step out into this. I want you to embrace the perfect love that I have for you. At this point, I'd like to welcome the worship team up. Um, I don't know what this means for you today. Some of us might be so overburdened by shame that we're carrying. Might be so, uh, might, we might have so many masks that we wear that we don't even know who we are anymore. We might wake up in the morning and see ourselves in the mirror and just, just struggle to continue. I know I certainly go through moments in life like that. So do you have that fear? Do you have that fear that if you were known that you would be rejected? Do you have that fear that if God knew you, he would no longer care or love you? Here's some questions to ponder as um, we move into a time of worship and a um, time of reflection. If you could write your answers on your connection cards and drop them off in the wooden boxes as you exit, that would be great. What facades do you wear? What facades do you wear? What is it that you are trying to cover up and why? And then the third one um, I'd like to add, sorry, I don't have it there, is how can you better and fully embody the perfect first love that God has for you and for those around you? How can you better embody the perfect first love that God has for you? Let's pray. God, you are so amazing. You love us and you have loved us way before we ever messed up, way before that shame that we carry inside us ever existed. You have loved us. And God, I pray that you would cast that fear, that shame out of us, that we would walk in the knowledge of your love, that whenever we see the image of the cross, we would see it as just the most insane, loving thing that a divine, ultimate creator being could do. God, speak to us. Holy Spirit, change our hearts. Holy Spirit, touch the core issues within us that cause us to do things like putting up facades, that cause us to become angry, that cause us to lust, that cause all these different manifestations. Jesus, touch our inner being and change us and transform us more into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.